Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. In the aftermath of Jacques Cartier's third and last expedition to the St. Lawrence River Valley in 1541, and despite the failed colonization attempt, throughout the rest of the 16th century, the European fishing fleets continued to make almost annual visits to the eastern shores of Canada. Chiefly as a sideline of the fishing industry, there continued an unorganized traffic in furs. At home in Europe, new methods of processing furs were developed and beaver hats in particular grew very fashionable. Thus, new encouragement was given to the infant fur trade in Canada. Sable Island is an isolated small Atlantic sandbar situated southeast of Halifax, Nova Scotia, that is notable for its role in early Canadian history when France initiated the first attempts to settle on the island. The Viceroy of New France, Marquis de la Roche, sent soldiers and settlers, mainly criminals, to Sable Island to establish a fishery and fur trading post. When the convicts mutinied, they were left on the treeless and stoneless Sable Island. Most of the settlers died, but a few managed to survive in mud dwellings for five years before being returned to France. Poorly planned, the settlement failed and was abandoned in 1603. Eric Yanis of the Other States of America podcast has graciously agreed to share his telling of this incredible story. The story of New France leads us to the year 1600. This will require us traveling from the St. Lawrence to 100 miles off the coast of Nova Scotia to a little tiny island or so-called island called Sable Island. Sable Island, in French, the name of the island means Island of Sand. The descriptions of the island vary wildly. Basically, authors can't decide whether this is a very large sandbar or a very small island. Some authors claim that Sable Island actually changes frequently in dimensions and argue that it pretty much is just a sandbar, just a speck of sand out in the ocean. Other authors also claim that the island actually moves in location. In a sense, the sand is shifting like a wave slowly moving about the Atlantic a little further this way, a little further that way. Not much of an island. In another source, I see that the island is a bow-shaped strip of sand, 20 miles long and a mile wide. And yet, in another source, I see that it's 25 miles long and one mile wide. Any way you look at it, the island, if that is an island, is only about 15,000 years old. And it was pressed below the sea level by glaciers during the last ice age. In another source, I see that they've described Sable Island as the following. Sable Island is an exposed part of a vast shoal on the outer edge of the continental shelf with long, shifting, and barely buried sandbars on all sides with no harbors prone to fogs and storms. Indeed, Sable Island will become known for primarily shipwrecks. So why make a colony there? Well, there were a couple positives, especially for European merchant at the end of the 16th century. First of all, it's not on the mainland. A lot of early European colonists wanted to settle on islands where they can get to the mainland but have the protection of an island because ultimately they didn't know very much about what was going on among the Native Americans. So it was off the mainland, that's one. It was a bit of a way station between Europe and North America, and explorers had determined that Sable Island was a bit warmer than areas in the St. Lawrence. So there were some benefits, but there were so many deficits and so many warnings in the front of this story that it's surprising that they ever tried to settle Sable Island, seeing that it's probable that in 1518 the French had tried to settle Sable Island, and it very quickly fell apart. 
There was a very short-lived colony created by Baron de Léry, a French nobleman, and in 1518, it came and went. It appears at a certain point in the 1530s all the way up into the 1550s, the island was seeded with cattle, either by accident in a shipwreck or on purpose for either an upcoming colony that was being planned or as a place where Portuguese ships could restock meat supplies. And so the French had early interest in the island, the Portuguese also, but by the year 1600 or so, the island was just full of feral animals, pigs and cows, things like that, things that never lived there before. The island had no trees and was surrounded by shipwrecks, warning everybody off. And that brings us back to our international man of mystery, La Roche. He had actually tried to settle his claim as far back as 1578, but his entire colonizing fleet was captured by the English. He tried again in 1583 and 84 and suffered shipwrecks and other setbacks that basically made it so the ships never even left port. But this only takes us to the 1580s. Why didn't he make further attempts? We've already talked about the year 1600. Well, as it turns out, Laroque was a Protestant. And like we've talked about before, nine civil wars of religion in France. He took the wrong side from time to time and ended up in prison, sometimes for years, sometimes for as long as seven years. And by the time the dust settled nationally and for Laroque personally, it was 1596. And by 1597, he received back all his rights and privileges to New France which at this point had languished unused for over 20 years, so much so that many in the royal court completely forgot about these titles and were handing out similar ones. The pressure was building for the French to make good on their claims, settle some people, because the English were poking their head around the New World. As we know, we're coming up on the year 1600. 1607 will be Jamestown, 1620 will be Plymouth. In the 1580s, you have Roanoke, the failed colony. And in 1583, Sir Humphrey Gilbert takes formal possession of Newfoundland on behalf of England. And so the pressure was on. But Laroque, he couldn't find people who willingly wanted to settle these unknown parts of the world and live on a little spit of an island off in the North Atlantic. And so he was authorized to take 250 convicts who would serve as the founders or prisoners of this colony. The King of France himself contributed funds and became an investor in the endeavor. And all they could really scrounge up were about 60 convicts who were described as strong tramps and sturdy beggars. Since this would be a penal colony, it was also beneficial that Sable Island was selected. There was nowhere to go. You can't escape. There's no natives to join. You're absolutely stuck. Laroque himself scouted out Sable Island once again in 1597. And by 1598, everything seemed ready to go. He received a new title from the French crown. He became Lieutenant General of Canada, Newfoundland, Labrador, and Norumbega. Now, all of these names, you probably recognize most of them. They didn't exactly line up with their modern-day territories. And Norumbega was a vague area between what is now the northern part of the state of Maine all the way into central New York. There really was no Norumbega. It was almost like a lost city, a lost land, mythical place. But nonetheless, even though having no eyes or ears in the area, he became the general of it. This was a grand title that had absolutely no substance. There was nobody on the ground who had any allegiance to this man whatsoever, and his only colonists were living on an island some hundred miles off the coast of one of his distant lands. The King of France would eventually upgrade him from Lieutenant General to Viceroy of New France. De Chauvin at Tadoussac would become his lieutenant, although they had absolutely no cooperation between them whatsoever. Laroque would have control of the fur trade coming in from North America, 
And in the long term, it's believed that Sable Island would become a sort of way station, that private traders would be operating in North America under a license, of course, issued by LaRoque and his monopoly. They would bring the furs to Sable Island, and then his operations would bring the furs back to France, allowing the traders to quickly return back to North America to resupply. But none of that ever came to fruition. LaRoche ends up dropping off 50 or 60 criminals, 10 soldiers, and one Franciscan monk on this island. Storms drove LaRoque back to France, and for a while after returning there, he was again imprisoned. And the colonists were left with exactly one winter's worth of supplies. And with this, as you can imagine, supplies would run out very quickly if the colonists didn't figure out how to make for themselves. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Now, first of all, there were cattle planted on this little tiny island some decades previously. So there were red cattle there. There were black foxes. There may have been some pigs. And of course, there was tons of sea life around. And so food wouldn't be as big of an issue as you would think. But there were no trees on the island. There was no way to build structures, dwellings, nothing. The only wood they could find came from shipwrecks, just planks of wood that had been soaked in seawater for God only knows how long. That's all they had to shelter themselves from the elements. But also, think about how they're cooking their food. If wood was so precious, it's reported that they cooked their food by burning feces. Animal feces. That's all they really had to burn was dried out feces. On top of all this, the colonists were expected to find something to export back to France when the resupply ships finally did show up. So if you want your resupply, you got to give us something. They learned how to hunt seals and walruses, and they were able to use their skins as a trade good, and they were able to render the oil. So they had oil, they had skins, and from the walruses, they were able to harvest the ivory. But this wasn't some sort of primitive paradise, Garden of Eden. By no means was it anything like that. The commandant on the island in charge of the soldiers, Commandant Cuebonnier, at some point he was having difficulty with all of these prisoners and requested help from France. And in the resupply ships, one of these first couple years, 1597, 98, 99, they send out a French policeman of the rank of lieutenant general to help keep the order. And so the commandant and the lieutenant general were basically the government of this tiny little colony. I say government, but in reality they were the prison guards, the, the wardens of this colony. And in return for these few products they were able to scrape out of Sable Island, the resupply ships would bring wine and clothing. And in some records it says only wine and clothing. So everything else you might need to survive, you'd have to find yourself or make yourself, catch yourself, kill yourself. It was all on you, other than wine and clothing. It was a meager living, and tensions were on the rise year after year. As it was clear, your quality of life wasn't going to improve on this island. It was only going to get worse, and then you were going to die. Now come the year 1602, 
there was no resupply ship. Of course, the settlers, waiting month after month, they wouldn't really know that the ship wasn't going to come. But as the winter dragged on in 1602 turned into 1603, tempers began to flare. And the details get vague, but basically there may have been around 60 people on Sable Island. But by the end of 1603, when a resupply ship did show up, there were 11. The commandant, the lieutenant general, dead. The colonists had risen up and killed their leadership and then spent the winter killing one another until there were 11 left living in their driftwood houses, their clothes long fallen off their body, wearing seal skins. There was a royal official on board this resupply ship who was supposed to inspect the state of the colony, and he found everything in such dire condition, he immediately took all the survivors, put them on board his ships, and headed back for France. One person, however, did stay behind. It was that lonely, quiet Franciscan monk we talked about earlier who lived somehow through all these horrors, but was sick and figured himself to be close to death. He has to remain on Sable Island and die there peacefully. But it is recorded that he survived, became a hermit on the island, and whenever there were shipwrecks on the shoals off the coast of Sable Island, he would go and rescue the survivors and mend them back to health. And it's said even to this day, among the fog and the sand and the waves, that his spirit haunts the island, being its only permanent resident. Laroque was furious with his colonists-slash-convicts and took the skins they had and the oil they had and anything they had to trade for himself as payment for their destruction of his colony and actually had them brought before the king because he was so angry with them. He wanted them all hung for being traitors, for committing treason, for rebelling against duly appointed French officials. But the king heard their terrible stories. Probable cannibalism, starvation, bad weather, living like an animal in the woods. The king took pity on them and actually gave them a small amount of money and demanded Laroque give the proceeds of all their supplies back to these convicts. And what happened to them after this point is unknown. To this day, the island remains a glorified sandbar in the North Atlantic, uninhabited save for one ghost. There are occasional navigational and weather employees who work on stations on Sable Island. That's about it. If you look in a social studies textbook on the topic of New France, It'll mention Cartier, and then it will just skip right ahead to Samuel de Champlain. All this stuff in the middle almost always goes without mention. Well, after this horrible experience, Laroque sells all his rights to New France to Chauvin. And now suddenly this one guy, who himself faced mostly failures in starting a colony, he had all the titles. It was all in one basket. And now this is setting the stage for when New France will actually take off. The story of New France is about to heat up. Join me next time as we follow in the footsteps of Jacques Cartier's iconic successor, the larger-than-life father of New France, Samuel de Champlain. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. 
Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.